This was kind of my first sense of Silicon Valley. It was a clear step up in terms of sort of just raw intellectual horsepower, intensity, and you know, I came to the conclusion that data fundamentally is human, right? It's generated by humans. It's ultimately consumed and analyzed by humans. Machines can help, but machines alone, I don't think, can be trusted in all cases to make the right decisions. Humans just don't scale exponentially, right? So, you know, if the problem, however, scales exponentially, you have to find some sort of other way of solving the problem. That's the bar that you need to set for yourself, that your system is as tight as you can possibly make it. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I sit down with Christian Began, co-founder and CTO of Sumo Logic, a log management and security analytics SaaS company. Christian and I cover a variety of topics throughout a pretty in-depth conversation. We first get an overview of Christian's background in software and his eventual move into deep enterprise software. We focus on his time at ArcSight, a traditional SIM vendor, where he joined as an early engineer and eventually rose to chief architect. We explore many of the challenges that ArcSight faced, including the standard challenges of first-generation on-prem software businesses and the moments that led to the founding of Sumo Logic. We dig into the early thesis of Sumo Logic, as well as the early challenges and pitfalls. From there, we explore the evolving security landscape that has shaped multi-tenant SaaS companies like Sumo. We then swing over to a few other emerging trends around AI and Kubernetes. Finally, we conclude the conversation on how Sumo Logic is embracing a new use case of providing data insights to inform business-level decision-making. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you will as well. All right, Christian, thank you so much for joining. Uh, thanks for having me. So let's just dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your background and then how you made it into enterprise software. Right on. So I am currently the uh, CTO and I also founded the company at uh, Sumo Logic for the last 10 years. We got started in 2010. Before that, I was an uh, early developer and then the crew of the company ultimately became chief architect at an enterprise software company called ArcSight. That was in the previous decade. It started in 2001. And uh, I am originally from Germany. You know, grew up in Germany, went to school in Germany, went to uh, went to university in Germany, and came over to the US for the first time uh, as an intern in late 1998. So that's all code for saying I'm really old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. And so the the first jobs you had 98 was that was that an enterprise software company or did you start kind of in consumer? Uh, you know, back then, I don't know how they would classify themselves back then, but uh, it was a small company called Amazon. Uh, so. <laughs> Amazing! Wow. Yeah, uh, it was a, it was a total uh, complete coincidence. Um, I, w- I went to a school of applied science in Germany, doing a, a mixed or sort of a blended program that had uh, computer science and sort of media and internet in the widest sense. You know, I started that in nineteen. 
96. This is uh, roughly around the time when the internet became a thing in Germany, probably like maybe a couple of years after it became in the US. But, uh, you know, uh, pretty close. You know, I worked construction that that summer. You know, I took the money, bought a modem, got like one of those Superfax 28K modems and, you know, dialed in and kind of never hung up since to some degree. Kind of got completely, you know, sucked into that, into sort of the network. I was actually at the time still studying social sciences, which is also sort of interesting in its own way. But um, I had been playing around with computers, you know, when I was a kid, kind of taught myself programming when I was like 11, 12 years old. By going, you know, to the library and you know, pulling these, you know, dot matrix printed books about you know, basic and what have you, Commodore 64 and all that stuff, and uh, kind of did that. Uh, it was just sort of a little bit self-driven. And as I got into high school, of course, other things became more interesting, and uh, didn't really go back to that. Um, I was politically active, you know, as a student a little bit, you know, that kind of stuff where things that you sort of paid like that you can kind of get sucked in when you're when you're still a little bit younger, you know, representation and those types of things. But that led me to eventually then go and, you know, study social sciences, which is, you know, politics and sociology, right? But it never really, it, it didn't really stick. Um, I wasn't really that interested in it. But you need to write a lot of papers when you do that kind of, you know, course of studies. And so I ended up getting a Mac. And then as soon as I had that Mac, I was, uh, I was back into just sort of just hacking around, right? And then the internet happened, you know, so the Mac was what I hooked up that uh, Superfax to, and, and that's what got me to the... I, I dialed in some local mailbox or some sort of pseudo AOL thing or so in Germany, I think for like a day or two, some sort of message board or what have you. But then, you know, there was, you know, Netscape Navigator and the internet, and, and that that's kind of, that's just basically never stopped, right? So I still... I mean, I still live in a web browser on some level, you know, many different web browsers and many different tabs today. But so that wasn't, that was 96, right? And I basically decided that I should probably, you know, because I was really interested in it, you know, and I would like, I would, I would read books, I would buy books and I could, you know, got hip to Linux and, and, you know, back into programming. And then, you know, I ran across this program, which was like in a small school outside of Berlin. And, um, you know, I fancied myself an artist as well, just like everybody who had a copy of Photoshop, right? You know, apply all these filters. Yeah, you're an artist. And, um, it turned out that I wasn't actually that much of an artist, uh, but I was one of the few people who actually knew how to program uh, in this particular college program. And so that I eventually then in 1998 got me in, an internship um, programming. Uh, and it was with a small German company called Telebuch, which sold books over the phone and then increasingly so over the internet. And that's where I got the internship. And, mm. you know, between uh, getting the confirmation in the summer and then starting it in the fall, guess what? These guys got bought by Amazon. Oh, interesting. And uh, you know, to this day, the, this was the foundation for the for the sort of German department of Amazon in in Bavaria. So they're still, I think, there. Uh, and so this this internship basically then turned into, hey, you know, let's go to Seattle um, and you know do something. And and so that's how I ended up at Amazon, right? You know, through no fault of my own, but <laughs> it, it actually did happen. It's uh, cool, right? W- what were you working on at Amazon like that summer? Um, so we did a <laughs> we did a prototype of a greeting card site. You know, one of those things where you kind of pick a funny picture and you know write a text and you know like you you send up to your parents like a sort of virtual um, greeting card. Yeah, yeah. At the time, there was a very successful site by the name of Blue Mountain Arts. They might still be around. I I have not really been in the sort of greeting card game <laughs> for a while, <laughs> so I'm not entirely up to speed there. And there was a hypothesis that they looked at their uniques and, you know, they were basically, you know, completely different people than that would shop at Amazon. And they said, hey, there's a company, like, if we can do something to, like, pull these types of users in, 
that don't seem to come to Amazon at all. You know, if we can grab them with, with like this sort of greeting card product, then, you know, maybe we can also start selling them stuff. It was a very high level sort of, you know, thesis to some degree also driven by, you know, the German guys that had gotten acquired and they needed to sort of, you know, figure out something to do. And anyways, that was kind of our internship. It is pretty random. Uh, we were some of the first people writing Java code at Amazon at the time. It was kind of interesting. And we were sitting in a basement here in downtown Seattle. It was pretty wild, the whole thing. Yeah, how big was Amazon when you, when you joined? Oh man, I have no idea. It, like, I would have to look it up. But like, they didn't really even have a, a single building. I mean, they were like already big enough to not fit into the whatever like initial like little office they had in downtown Seattle. Yeah. So they were all spread out, you know, first street, second street, blah, 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 all there. Yeah, you know, and when we would have to go, you know, cross town to sort of do meetings and stuff like that and they had like a little like a data center which like in in a big building in downtown a second or whatever it was i don't i forgot we, we got to drop a server off there once and then there was like this big sunbox oh right uh sunbox in the back you know that had a label on it that read mom you know i still you know still find that pretty funny so that must have been their master database or what have you i don't know but different times right so i mean they were obviously already a thing but Clearly not to the degree. I think they were already public at the time, oh, okay. right? But yeah. like they went, if I'm if I'm if I'm not mistaken, but that happened all super quickly. Like you know, I mean, in in, in sort of, you know, their whole timeline was just ridiculously accelerated. Right? Yeah, I mean, the timelines for all these you know dot com companies that that age was was just you know so fast, right? You think about like eighteen months to IPO kind of timeline. So yeah. But you know what I remember there was like one one really cool thing is like we had like a you know many years before they actually implemented it for all the customers we had kind of a quote unquote preview of the prime functionality because basically when you ordered something you would go to some sort of internal login and then you would get the full catalog right and um, so you order a book or something they were guys who would basically next day drop it off at your desk oh wow that's um, wonderful and so. That was just outstanding, right? We were like, holy shit, you know, that's pretty cool. So we kept ordering stuff. Oh, that's funny. Did you also have any kind of previews for the like stuff like AWS, like sort of, like, you know, infrastructure as a service while you were working there as in building sort of? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. So that was still totally like not, not a thing yet. No, they were still doing OBDOS and, you know, even like I think although, like that, that original backend, if I'm not completely mistaken. And again, you know, I was like at best a visitor in that world, right? I mean, sure. I, I don't really, you know, but I, I, I believe this OBDOS thing that they had initially was all written in C. And when we showed up writing some Java code, there were, there, there were some sort of, you know, eyebrows raised. Uh, but they had already started acquiring companies. And I remember we there was one company called Jungly that did, I think they did some sort of comparison shopping thing and they got acquired out of, uh, and then they had already some Java backend. So we ended up talking to those guys a little bit. So they sent one of their, you know, more senior engineers over from, from that acquisition who had done a lot more with Java than we could have ever imagined. Because, you know, remember we were very young and we had no idea what, I mean, basically no idea what we're doing there. But so anyways, we built that prototype. Of course, it got scrapped. And, you know, I think at some time later, they ended up like for a little while running a greeting card site, but that's also long gone. That's yeah. Oh, wait, they, they still don't have a greeting card site. That's uh, it's too bad. They had one. That's they had bad. one in between. <laughs> yeah. Then you went back to school and then you started a, a company while you're in school or something. Is that what happened? Yeah. So what happened, right? You know, in like there in Seattle, you know, and this was just literally like in late 98, early 99, I mean, you know, everybody's heads was exploding, right? I mean, it was just this incredible boom. And, you know, we had sort of, you know, gotten brought in to do this internship by the, uh, you know, German founders of that German company that had been acquired, right? And, you know, they were running around in Seattle and they were entrepreneurs at heart. And 
they were too entrepreneurial to fit into the sort of Amazon system at that time, right? And they were like running around trying to figure out what to do. And they had some ideas. And, you know, of course, they had made a bunch of money so they could finance that also. And and so there was all these startup ideas floating around. And, you know, I got like sucked into one of them, which was kind of a language translation thing. Um, because, you know, we were all German and we, our English was not that good. And, you know, we were trying to build things that like make it easier to learn English and, and maybe even like online translate web pages and stuff like that. That was the high level idea, right? And so one of those, you know, German founder types basically went and, you know, started that and, and I was sort of part of that. And that was really only for a couple of months. Um, it got started in Santa Monica and, you know, long story anyways, but it was Santa Monica and then like the other office was in Berlin. That's where I was living at the time uh, and also going to school, right? And so... So they built that up and then, you know, people started falling out over there. Like there was something going on. Uh, I, I didn't even really know what was going on. You know, there were some business guys that were brought in. And then, of course, the business guys ended up not liking each other. <laughs> the usual stuff. <laughs> so, um, as, as is the common, you know, startups going under because of co-founder disputes, right? It happened. Yeah, it, it was, uh, I honestly never really found out exactly what was going on, but frankly, I really didn't care either. So, because, you know, there was one person there that had come, you know, to sort of run this sort of operations, like really like a COO type that came over from, from the US, actually from Miami, because these guys had connections over there as well. It's, it's all very complicated. But anyways, this person showed up and, you know, we liked her. And then, you know, me and, and our buddy, my buddy Stefan, who is actually, you know, still working with me and he's a chief architect at Sumo now. We basically went and, you know, started another company with this person from Miami. And because the idea was that uh, it would be nice to have access to your files, you know, from the Internet. Uh, if you're like in an internet cafe, I don't know if you remember those, but there were used to be times where not everybody was online and you had to go to a place, right? And sure. not everybody had laptops at the time and obviously no phones and all these things, right? So, you know, long story short, we had sort of this sort of basic idea of, you know, building kind of a file system in the internet, you know, like a web browser kind of, like like a Dropbox thing, sure. right? You know, the, the, the great redemption in this, because we completely fucked that up, right? But like from an execution perspective, uh, we had no idea what we were doing. But the great redemption is that I can always now refer to Dropbox and everybody goes like, oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that was Gigaton? Yeah, that was Gigaton. It was cool. Okay. You know, we, we, were, we, were, we were having a lot of fun. So that's what got me permanently. But it was it was targeted at sort of like consumers rather than targeting uh, enterprises. Is that right? I'm not sure it was even targeted at anybody in that sense. I mean, we, we just <laughs> thought that this needed to be in a thing and we kind of started building it, right? Okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, during that time, we, you know, we grew it out. There was like, I don't know, 30, 50 people or so at some point, you know, sitting there outside of Fort Lauderdale in Miami. And wow. Uh, it was all pretty wild and then it didn't go anywhere. But, you know, we ended up going around and, you know, talking to some VCs, trying to raise more money. We had some trips to the you know, to Boston, some trips to Silicon Valley. That's that's one of these, like that was kind of the first time I, can, I was ever in a bunch of these VC offices and, you know, met those types of people. And nobody would give us any money. But, um, you know, technically people, you know, even, even then we're still, and this was after the bubble had burst, like now we're talking uh, early 2001, right? Technical people, as you know, you know, always sort of in short supply. So, you know, talking to all of these VCs ultimately netted me a, an interview at a company of one of those VCs that they had just incubated and that turned out to be Arcside. Oh, interesting. So you had kind of been going around pitching Gigaton to all these different investors. No one really wanted to invest in the company, so you wound it down. But then one of the things that happened was you got an interview with, with Arcside. Exactly. 
So, you know, they didn't want to give us any money, but they were like, hey, you know, maybe you can work for one of our companies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that was awesome uh, because it got me, you know, I, I still remember this, you know, uh, Hugh and Jimansi, who is the, uh, you know, one of the founders and the CTO of, um, of, of ArcSight. He gave me a call and I was like driving down a freeway in like an old beat up, you know, Honda Civic in Florida. And like he started asking me coding questions on the phone. And <laughs> so it's pretty funny. Uh, anyways, I went out there and I met them uh, in Sunnyvale. That was like early 2001. And that was like by far the most, the smartest set of people I've ever met. Mm. You know, I know that sounds like a bit of a cliche, but like I was just completely blown away. And it was just incredible. I mean, I could sort of see like I, this was kind of my first sense of you know Silicon Valley. It was a clear step up in terms of sort of sort of just raw intellectual horsepower, intensity, and you know, I, I guess I was in Seattle and all of that, you know, with Amazon, but like probably a little bit too far removed from where all the smart people were because we were like working on a little little dinky prototype there. But like that interview that day, I remember was just complete. That just blew, blew me away, right? And. Uh, I ended up getting the offer, and then, like in in April two thousand one, I, I moved all my stuff over from from Florida, and um, and so this is pretty early in their in their life cycle, right? Yeah, they were probably half a year old, or maybe at this point, maybe maybe nine months or something like that. And and what was ArcSight? Yeah, so ArcSight grew up to be a, a security, information, and event management, you know, software, so an, an SIEM. So this is basically software that takes logs. Right from security devices, from from security software, from from all of these different sort of security point products, and centralizes it, so that you have kind of a central you know point of view, can run analytics, uh, rules engine to detect threats on the top of all of the sort of point uh, point product output, and that was sort of the big thesis, right? And they had come across that by you know interviewing lots of customers, and they told them that's a real problem, and so they built a company around that, right? Okay, cool. So yeah, there was basically a was a meta product that was sort of a, a security analytics, you could say, but also lots of data management underneath because we brought all of these log files together in a big database and, and then lots of sort of real-time analytics on top of that. So it was, it was pretty cool. It was clearly, when they pitched it to me, it seemed like this makes sense. Not that I knew a lot at the time, but like it just seemed to make sense, right? You know, you have various vendors and, you know, they kind of see, you know, Especially in security, there's a lot of sort of best of breed buying going on, right? And there's always lots of innovation as well, right? So you might have, you know, Cisco networking gear, but you might buy a firewall from Checkpoint mm-hmm. back in the day, right? Or you have uh, an IDS from ISS back in the day, but like you wouldn't buy all of these different things from the same vendor. That that would not often happen, right? Because you would go after the vendor that had the best product in for this particular purpose. But then what you ran into is that you didn't really have a centralized way of making sense of all the output, right? So you set up the firewall and, it, you know, if you're lucky, it would, you know, block things. Or you would set up the, uh, you know, intrusion detection systems. And if you were lucky, you know, it would sort of find the five bytes that feel like, you know, beginning of shellcode or something. And, they, you know, you would look into the various vendors' management interfaces, but you know, you had to do all of this, you know, correlation, you know, I don't know, on paper or on your head or what have you. Obviously, that's not great. So we brought all the data into one place and, you know, gave people a a kind of control station, you know, for that. And that was, that was cool. Still cool. And did that category exist? Like, you know, SIM, was that a thing? No. Okay. No, no, it wasn't. The name that stuck was that name, right? And that's that's one of those things that Gartner made up, you know, as they want to do, you know, dealing in in, you know, 
abbreviations and stuff. So sure. there was, Arcsight was very early in that space. There was, I think, maybe a product or two out there, like that was probably a year or so older. There was something called Net Forensics out there that was that's going after something similar. And I think there was one more. I forgot the name of that. Uh, I said ended up probably all founded around the same time. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. As, as this always happens, right? You know, like yeah. within a year or two of each other, something like that. Is, is if I remember correctly. Yeah. And um, I said ended up becoming the category leader. Ended up being very successful. You know, being you know all the way up into the right in the magic quadrant, and ended up going public. You know, in early 2008, right before the crash. <laughs> and usually when I show up somewhere, things crash, you know, when I, come, when I came to the US, when I came to the US for Gigaton, it was like in March 2000, right? So yay. And then Arxet went public and then, you know, a couple months later. So by the time the lockup came off, you know, the market was basically fucked, right? <laughs> you were you were at Arxet far longer than, you didn't like just join and it crashed. You were there, you know, from the beginning. So, so uh, I, you know, I, am, I, have, I have absolutely no illusions about about anything anymore at this point, right? You know, uh, it is what it is, and I think it just proves you have staying power despite the ups and downs. You'll you'll stay, yeah. you know, stay the course. So the thing that I've seen, right, and that right, that's what helps is that like it is cyclical, right? But it always recovers, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, when you want to do your thing, it's like go to market or you know, in Oxford's case, looking for an exit or what have you, right? You know, there's all these timing considerations. And but you know you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Nobody can see these things coming, right? Yeah. And then you just have to stay through. And if you've set up the thing properly and you have enough money in the bank, and you know maybe have been conservative with spending or maybe you know raised a little bit ahead, you know to have buffer, then you know usually things turn around, right? The economy has this. It, it, in our lifetime, it seems to it seems to go up into the right eventually, right? Yeah. Exactly, I mean, right. And you know, it totally bounces back after a couple of years. The, the long arc of history. Yeah. yeah, I've seen it twice now. You know, who knows? Cool. And I mean, so you were very involved in the engineering side, both as like uh, you know, sort of lead engineer, and then eventually as chief architect. So, you know, were there any sort of like key lessons that you learned at ArcSight? Because this is. Realistically, this is your first enterprise software company. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you first stepped into that role, did do you remember what your perspective was? How that changed? How you sort of like adapted to to you know sort of building for for enterprise uh, customers? You know, I wish I could say I've kind of developed a grand theory or something, but I really haven't. What I've observed, and to some degree, you know, this still applies to this day. Is it's not easy to get to something that you know customers actually need. So like this gigaton thing, this whole like files in the internet and so forth, right? We never established product market fit, right? But like, you know, the Arc said product market fit was pretty clear. You know, Sumo was also pretty clear. So we never really had to struggle with that, right? So as soon as you got it built, you know, you know, people will start using it, right? So so there's a whole aspect of, you know, how do you kind of go from nothing to something, you know, around, you know, experimenting and product market fit and so forth. And, you know, what are the sort of lessons that people have learned around, you know, not overbuild and not get stuck, you know. Make sure that you keep yourself, you know, agile, and you can kind of tear down something and you know build a wholly different sort of product in a couple of weeks, just to basically support that idea of finding product market fit. That all makes a ton of sense to me, and and like theoretically, I totally get it. But personally, I have not, I have not been in that in that situation, right? Uh, so it basically starts after product market fit, basically, mm. right? So I guess I got lucky there, or I, I don't know how you want to put that, but like that's so my experience comes from, from that, right? And then what I've seen is, you know, as soon as there's even one customer, right? And, you know, one leads to three, and then, you know, three leads to like 15, et cetera, et cetera, and you have a sales team. 
of course, it doesn't always work perfectly in the beginning and, you know, sales team struggling, et cetera, et cetera. Like, of course, always, right? But there will be deals, there will be POCs, there will be, you know, eventually people will buy. At that point, you know, it's just basically an incredible tornado, right? And and you end up being, like your default mode is being reactive, right? And so so somehow you have to figure out in that kind of, you know, onslaught of every day being completely different, you have to somehow figure out how to not lose con- complete control over the architecture of the system. And that's very hard. So that's always how I've seen that, right? And then... The way that I've always felt that that's best managed is by, you know, you know, trying to be pragmatic, right? If you go too dogmatic on, you know, how you implement things, then uh, and you know, go away. And, and I've, I've made that mistake and as well. Go away and say, hey, we can completely redesign this part of the system because clearly now we know more. And, you know, back then we were anyways idiots. So, you know, how could we have even done it the way that we did it? But you know, once it's out there and once customers are using it, you know, you, you're not going to ever kill it. So so there's a bunch of lessons that I learned there where, you know, you just have to live with, you know, everything you do basically has a lot of, it's going to stick around for a long time. I don't know, there's no magic formula there, right? You just basically have to be pragmatic about it and, you know, basically be able to kind of, at any given point in time, continue to be able to evolve the system. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I think the, the key lesson there being like, just in enterprise software, generally, like, once customers start using something, it's very hard to deprecate and take things away, and so you sort of have to constantly evolve your system, you know, without complete rebuilds. I guess is what you're saying. Exactly right, and it's not like you can run. It's not like an internal software for, I don't know, some sort of insurance thing or what have you. Where you can go in and you know, run a, a domain-driven design process or something, which I, I I would love to do at one point, but. You know, because your your user base is right there, right, and it's kind of captive, and you can talk to them. When when you build these these types of products that I've been involved in, you know, there's a lot of guesswork involved, right? And it's not that we don't talk to users and customers. Obviously, we do, right? But you know, for these types of sort of softwares and and in platforms like we do with 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 Sumo now, the the use cases are so broad and wide. You know, you have to have a good amount of intuition there, right? And and the feedback that you're getting is not always you know very well sort of structured, so. You had, you end up having to sort of adjust your thinking a lot and just hope that you know your basic idea about what this kind of product should be doing and sort of the basic bones of the architecture are going to survive, right? And at ArcSight, we made a bunch of decisions in the beginning that ended up being, you know, real bummers, you know, over the years. And then we introduced like specifically the data backend, you know, like we're talking locks, right? So that's sort of semi-structured, you know, data. Sometimes people say unstructured, but technically it's semi-structured. This is not something that, that fits into sort of a classic RDBMS, right? Which is sort of the default backend, I guess, if you have if you have something where you need to store data and then also query it, right? And but it doesn't really fit well. And these days it's a little bit different, but like back in 2001, there wasn't a lot of sort of alternative database technologies out there. So we ended up going with Oracle and we kind of, we kind of sort of abused Oracle into essentially being kind of a append-only store for sort of lock events. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked out for a couple of years, but then eventually we got to a place where the thing was so successful. And, uh, you know, as we know, you know, data even back then has was already on this sort of exponential, you know, growth curve. And, uh, you know, that applies to security data and, you know, these types of like lock events 100%, right? 
going from like 50 events per second to 500 events per second to 5,000 events per second, you know, ingested and processed and correlated and so forth. And then people started showing up and they wanted 50,000. And, <laughs> right? and at some point, what we found was that, you know, the way that we had originally architected it, it just wouldn't scale out, right? It mm -hmm. was monolithic, right? With an app server and a database. And I learned a lot about Oracle, you know, including that it simply, you know, the classic database just does not scale out, right? And that was a big bummer, right? And that was something that we sort of kind of half knew in 2001, but there was really no other choice because going and building it like in a clustered fashion, like, you know, it was a funny discussion. You know, we basically raised our hand back then and we said, hey, you know, we should really kind of like put a clustering or we call it clustered sort of architecture back then in there as a foundation. But it would add about half a year, you know, to the uh, release timeline of version one, right? And the business was not you know, didn't really want to hear that, which to some degree I also understand. You know, in hindsight, you know, it amuses me to think that we thought back then that we could get that done in half a year. <laughs> so probably a business was right in not allowing us to do that because it's probably taken a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, that's what I was thinking when you first said it. It's like, yeah, we estimated it six months. I was like, and that would have stretched to how long actually, right? Right, and then I guess in hindsight, you just basically, you know, you can take like a class half empty view and say, hey, it's just you just can't win. Right, yeah. because you do this, and then you have a successful product, but then eventually you run out of runway. Or you take a look at it, and you say you're you're more optimistic about, it and you just say, hey, well, but you know, we were still around in 2008 when this has become a problem because the product was so freaking successful. Yeah, and you know, I I think I continue to like you know, as much as I would like you know to do the right thing you know every day and in the beginning and halfway through and what have you. You know, still actually you know being there and you know same with Sumo right and you know having a right to play. You know, you know, beats making only the right decisions <laughs> and stone because nobody can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know, I always say it's kind of like that's future grants problem in terms of decisions I make now that I know will incur some debt later. But like, yep. yeah, that's you know, that's kind of what debt's for, right? It's like the opportunity to to incur a little now. But man, a part of that is I have also seen where this can really kind of become a problem. I mean, the, the core oxide product. The, the enterprise security manager, which is the thing that I worked on. You know, I guess if there's any accident people listening, you know, we might have to stick debate or something. But, you know, I do think that this like initial architectural limitation, you know, that, that we baked in in order to get it to market and which ultimately made it successful eventually then also opened up the door for others to disrupt, right? Right. But I mean, you know, and, and you could have disrupted yourselves, but you didn't. And so we didn't. We tried, actually. That attempt was made. Um, we built a appliance version that had like a custom data store. Mm. Well, that was very fast. It was very fast. I think it didn't really distribute because again, you know, that that just adds to the complexity of the problem. But it was custom built. It was pretty fucking fast, right? And so it could go, you know, at, at very high sort of event ingest speeds, hundreds of thousands, and so forth, right? But then it didn't really know how to do the correlation. So then we had to kind of, you know club it together so you had to buy software and hardware and then you know eventually you know people came around that had like a better sort of more sort of big data style MapReduce style architecture you know Splunk comes to mind for example they, they did that really well mm -hmm. uh, and they ended up causing you know post 2010 or so they, they started causing a lot of trouble for Excite. Yeah and so you stayed through the IPO a any quick like insights from the IPO around just like ways that that challenged you as a technologist and an architect? I mean, IPO generally, since I've been through it now once, you know, as an employee, it can get pretty emotional, 
right? Especially if you have something where you go public, lock off comes off, and you know you are basically under issue, right? And you know people who thought they're gonna walk out with I don't know 100 grand are now you know look at like 30 grand or what have you, you know, apply your scaling factor. Mm-hmm. So that can become on a tactical basis very hard to manage uh, for individuals and for the company, and you know in terms of getting you know people to stay motivated and so forth. So then basically you have to decide: Am I gonna sell and you know you know just f off or or am I gonna am I gonna have you know trust that like this downturn will turn around and and so forth, right? And and so then in early 2009, what happened was President Obama started giving a bunch of speeches around the importance of cybersecurity. And uh, anyways, as the market started bouncing back a little bit, you know, there was like additional, you know, we we got like a bunch of additional like media attention, you know, through through the sort of cyber angle, right? Because it's a fundamentally a sort of mm. cybersecurity play, and then you know the markets picked up on that. So you know, thanks Obama, I guess. And uh, so in the end, you know, you know, folks ended up folks that actually you know were able to kind of stick it out for like a year or so. You know, stock price ended up going up and and so forth, and then like a little bit more when the acquisition happened, and and so it was a cool experience. I think a bunch of us actually ended up with a couple hundred dollars, <laughs> and uh, you know, so so down payment money basically in the Bay Area. Yeah, sure. Right. You know. Yeah. Enough money to run a small country, but like you know, over here it's basically a down payment for like a small house, right? <laughs> so, so, yeah. So yeah. that was cool, right? And you know, I I really do, you know, in 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 like still looking back, you know it. I'm still extremely grateful to the Arcside, you know, leadership team and the guys who hired me back then because it, it was really, it was a fantastic experience both professionally and, you know, I ended up making a little bit of money and, you know, set me up to do something else. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah. So let's let's jump into that. So you leave Arcside and had you already kind of had the idea for Sumo Logic or kind of what's the founding story? How did it come about? It had been in my head. Um, so the story there is that, you know, rewind to 2008, we ended up on a hunch going uh, to Stanford for sort of an open talk by a guy with the name of Werner Vogels, who, of course, is the Amazon CTO and who was talking on the topic of AWS, right? Amazon Web Services. And this was 2008. I think they were only, they had only done that thing for like about two years at the time, right? I think they had S3 and SQS and EC2 or so. I think those were the sort of foundational services that they had, right? And I remember, you know, being geek enough to sort of read stuff on Slashdot and then, you know, Hacker News and so forth. We were sort of aware, but like, I don't think we had really understood what it was that they were doing. It, it just sounded like, this is really weird. It doesn't fit into any category. What are they doing? Uh, okay, next article, right? But sure. uh, it was somehow, there was a hook in my head and you know, so kind of we went... Uh, and heard Werner talk, and you know he did like a ninety-minute thing. And I don't think I, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to, to sort of hear him keynote. He's just an incredible, incredible speaker, and and he has this ability of you know contextualizing, like in this case AWS, like why what they are doing benefits customers, right? And then of course you know he's a professor in Cornell, and he can go and talk about you know distributed consensus and all these kinds of things, right? But like as a CTO. You know what he really brought across, uh, you know, to us as a as a technical audience wasn't necessarily how EC2 worked or how S3 worked, but but why what it did was sort of uniquely enabling even back then their like early customers to do just like outrageous stuff, right? Mm. Like Animoto was a thing back then, right? This thing where you upload a bunch of pictures and it sends you back this you know ridiculously overproduced video, right? Which was a huge thing and. 
you know, they went from like having like running it on a Game Boy some somewhere, right? <laughs> and then somebody's in somebody's closet, uh, you know, to somehow, you know, suddenly they they had like, you know, I don't know, ten thousand videos uploaded per per minute or so, and then they, they scaled that out on EC2 basically overnight and, and so all these super cool stories about, you know, scale and and then he had lots of other stuff that he was talking about. And, you know, long story short is that, you know, walking out of that talk, it became very clear that what they were doing there, you know, what it was that they were doing, why they were doing it, and also why it was, you know, just ridiculously awesome from the perspective of, you know, enabling developers to do even more. Basically, what was clear at the time was that they are starting to, or they already had started to turn a data center into an API, right? Right. And so as developers, you know, I'm, you know, sure you, you'll empathize with that, Um we know how to sort of automate things, right? That's that's kind of, you know, we write code to make computers do things, right? That's kind of our superpower, right? And now we can automate entire data centers. That basically means that, you know, we can maybe, you know, think big about building, you know, hosted systems, building SaaS, you know, those types of things without even having to know the people that know all about the racking and stacking and the networking and the cables and all of that, right? And so what that left us with was was sort of this idea that, hey, you know, what if we recast what we were doing and, you know, maybe we can solve some of the obvious problems that we were seeing with the enterprise product at the time, you know, by turning it into SaaS and not just that as an abstract idea, but, you know, with AWS as a sort of substrate for that, you know, actually realistically achievable, right? Because, you know, clearly if there's an API, you know, we can make it dance. So that was very formative. And I remember the parking lot discussions there with a bunch of other guys there, and, you know, including Kumar, who then became my uh, co-founder in Sumo. And, you know, we immediately went from, hey, this makes perfect sense to, okay, so how can we harness this, you know, for the stuff that we are doing? And not necessarily in the, from the perspective of immediately going and starting a new company. It was just like, hey, how does this apply to our day-to-day stuff? Sure. Right? And, and, and so I think that was kind of the nucleus of the idea to basically, you know, and, and the idea is very simple, right? It's to say, you know, this type of product, this type of data consolidation, and then, you know, central analytics platform, you know, is incredibly useful. You know, we've seen that from the success, you know, that Arcsat had even just in the security space. Uh, logs, obviously, are something that as developers we are very familiar with, right? And and so, you know, we even had written our own sort of remote log analytics tools to to sort of remotely debug, you know, failing servers at customer side and so forth, right? And this this was definitely going to be, you know, a thing, you know, that was potentially not just interesting for security, but for other use cases as well. So that's the good news, right? But like all of this type of product was kind of, you know, delivered as enterprise software, had problems scaling. And, you know, we just made this experience the customers struggled so much with installing and administering it that they had, you know, it often felt like they weren't actually, there wasn't that much time left to actually use the product. And, and to us, it was very unsatisfying, right? Because we build a product so people can use it, not so we can be on the phone, you know, to sort of debug, uh, you know, again, broken Oracle data files, right? <laughs> right, because for, for the Arc site sort of, you know, implementation, you were basically delivering, was it one like jar file or war file or what, what was the primary bits? Yeah, basically I'd had an installer, but it was basically dumping a big Java application, right? And then yeah. there was like a, you know, 300,000 page manual on how to exactly configure Oracle. <laughs> right. And so like your customer had to set up like their actual servers, rack and exactly. stack physical servers, and then like bring in the Java runtime and then Tomcat and then set up Oracle databases and set up, you know, like configure the Java application. And then did the actual application scale horizontally or did the application scale only vertically as well, the monolithic application? No, only scaled vertically. 
Okay. And it didn't even do that so well, frankly. You know, there used to be this company called Sun Microsystems, right? And sure. you know, they, they used to build these really large boxes with with like twelve or you know, twenty-four or forty-eight CPUs in them, right? And we're talking two thousand three, two thousand four. And since it's since our stuff was written in Java, people were like, Oh, we're just gonna like throw it on this, you know, ETNK or something, <laughs> right? Or a Sunfire <laughs> of some 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 of some sort. So we got we went over there, you know, there where the Actually, where the Facebook campus now is in Menlo Park, that used to be a big Sun campus, and that's what that was where their performance lab was, right? Uh, it was pretty cool because you know they had like an entire lab set up, and you know people that were managing that, so you could come in and test your software to see if it scales out to the to the big iron, basically. And you know we did something very similar with IBM at some point as well. And so one of the cool things on that on that uh, I forgot it was a Sunfire of some sort, right? So it has 24 CPUs, right? And of course our code was written in Java, it was multi-threaded, and of course it would scale and all of these things. <laughs> you know, that's what you think. That's what you walked in believing. <laughs> exactly. and, and then you were actually run it on a machine that has more than two cores or, or CPUs at the time. They didn't. It was actually proper CPUs, right? These giant boards is very cool, but you know they had this like widget that basically showed you each CPU in a row and you know how much you know, basically the CPU usage, right? So the dancing meters, basically the CPU meters, right? And there were like 24 of them. And our application would basically run, and it would keep you know all 24 CPUs busy for about you know 10 milliseconds, and then it would go and basically you know <laughs> everything went to zero, and one CPU ended up garbage collecting for like four seconds or so. <laughs> Amazing. Because clearly, you know, if you don't actually test this type of stuff while you're developing it, it's not just going to scale out, right? So that's the sort of funny side story where. Like even vertical scaling is actually not that simple. That's really funny. <laughs> so of course we ended up like you know making a bunch of fixes and so forth, right? But that was always a struggle, right? And you know we had like customers at the time in in the sort of on the government side and military and so forth, and they had all this iron lying around. And they were like, oh, it's gonna run, no problem. Right? <laughs> not that it's not that easy, right? And yeah. and and so you know the story there is that it's obviously useful. You know what we were trying to do there was there was also sort of on a day to day basis there was a lot of kind of grinding in making customers successful, right? And you know I was kind of you know core server guy and you know I ended up on the phone you know trying to remotely debug things so many times, ended up like you know taking over a lot of time, didn't actually spend developing, and then you know it was more and more people like maintaining this thing, ended up I think to some degree also. You know, taking a real bite out of out of the innovation budget, and then so we saw all of that, right? And obviously, we then saw you know the rise of Salesforce, you know, completely like killing Siebel, and like I think ServiceNow was already starting to become a thing. And we had early on, I had some exposure to Remedy, and and so I knew about that, and you know, and I knew how that like went down, and and so this idea of basically classic enterprise software being, you know, just completely disrupted by software as a service, startups. Right. I mean, that was already there was already sort of an emerging pattern there. Right. And then, yeah, just to kind of reiterate, just like how it was just so difficult to set up these applications like ArcSight. Like that was just there was so much overhead. And then to your point, every customer was doing this on like some slightly different environment. Exactly. And so your team was like, Basically, everyone's trying to repeat the same effort to get this thing to run, and you're—it's like you can't even really scale it vertically, and there's all these challenges, and so, yep. and then you know you've got the actual physical hardware that, like, you know, oh, someone like tripped over a cable, and like that's why it stopped working, and like you have all these different things that can go wrong, and so then to your point, like SaaS evolves and like takes away all of this operational overhead, just says like 
don't worry, like we'll host it, like we'll manage it, we'll scale it, we'll run it. And that's kind of you know the, the point you're at now, right? Exactly, right? And for me, this was just, you know, I didn't learn that by reading a book or so, right? Like this just came out of doing what we were doing. And it was the kind of hard-earned, I guess, you know, wisdom. And um, at least sort of in our space, it turned out into a bit of an unfair advantage. And, you know, knowing about that and then formulating the idea that this had to become SaaS, right? And that's ultimately what the sort of founding uh, idea behind Sumo, right? Not necessarily do a completely different product because we thought that that basic product orientation was very useful. Uh, you know, maybe broaden the aperture or what have you. And then it turned out to, you know, not initially be security. We went after application monitoring first, but, you know, we can talk about that more later. But there was nothing, you know, the idea that this type of product had to exist, you know, there was nothing wrong with that. We just felt that we could do it better, right? So it's very incremental. You know, Sumo didn't start from some, you know, business plan competition or or three people, you know, sitting in a dark room, you know, trying desperately to think up a startup idea. It was to us, it was just it was just totally obvious that this was clearly going to be the next generation of this type of product, right? You know, moving it into a service, and then from our perspective, of course you know, leveraging AWS because we had no idea about what a data center, I mean, I haven't seen one from the inside in, in a very, very long time, right? <laughs> uh, and just sort of use that substrate in order to build, you know, what we needed to build and automate it all and, you know, take the humans out of the picture for those places where they just shouldn't be in, right? And have one environment, have full control, not just over the code, but also the deployment environment, right? As you already said, Versus, you know, getting stuck in London for three weeks in a bank, you know, basically with no return ticket until you fix the bug. Like one of my guys got literally stuck in London at some point for that long. <laughs> I had <laughs> at some point I compiled a custom JVM with additional instrumentation for a customer, you know, just to figure out why, you know, there was a particular bug and it had something to do with object allocation and you know profiler tools were too slow. So Hacked something in, recompiled a JVM, and you know they ran a Dash Christian version <laughs> in production. It's a, you know I never thought that I would be able to recompile a JVM in the first place, but like banging on it for a night, it actually ended up working, and you know we got this sort of additional debug information that we needed. Interesting, crazy stuff, right? It just that the point is that this stuff just doesn't scale, right? And you know data sort of completely outscales this. You know humans just don't scale exponentially, right? So, you know, if the problem, however, scales exponentially, you have to find some sort of other way of solving the problem. And for us, that was, you know, turn it into a service, full control over the code, over the development environment, you know, focus, refocus the customer back on using the product, right? And, you know, we got there by, you know, believing that we, you know, are like this particular set of people, you know, my, my co-founder and I, that we could actually pull it off, even though we had no idea about running services, data center, all of that type of stuff, because we didn't have to, considering that AWS took care of the problem. So that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, the real platform shift there, right, is 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 like, hey, AWS is going to manage all these servers. This whole SaaS wave is coming, and so exactly, you're right. The 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 fundamental idea, like, we don't have to do the core value proposition differently. We just need to do the like ancillary parts of this which are we're going to take away all the operational burden from you and give you a very familiar like set of core you know product value from this right exactly because we felt that it's yeah. just you know you should just use the product and not worry about how the product you know is implemented it's, it's so that was that was 10 years ago so you started that and initially went after the biggest enterprises or focused on developers or small business where, where did you sort of see your initial customer segment yeah, I think if you start a company and this was sort of VC backed and you know we sort of you know raised the Series A right away, uh, you know before we had a product built, 
you know, I think you always kind of end up maybe falling into this trap of thinking that, hey, you know, this is going to be an enterprise play. So, so that's always a little dangerous, right? Because everybody wants to be an enterprise company because everybody thinks that's where the largest pot of gold is, right? And to some degree, that's also true. But, you know, it turned out that our initial customers were much more mid-market. Lots of companies that uh, themselves had, you know, already, you know, lots of digital companies, you know, CDNs, that type of stuff, right? Uh, that themselves were probably already services, right? That's really how it started because... In the beginning, this whole discussion about, oh, the data goes into the where? <laughs> Cloud? <laughs> you know, we had to basically figure out how to sell that. So our initial customers turned out to be much more companies that were sort of philosophically, you know, aligned with like how we were thinking about the world, right? And then it expanded from there. Okay, so interesting. So you went out, built this first product, thought like you'd go close every big enterprise, hired the really expensive enterprise salespeople that probably had the Rolodex, they failed, and then you realized that your real customers that, that were willing to adopt you know, eight, ten years ago were more mid-market folks that were starting, starting anew. In a nutshell, yep. And, and is, that, is that like the whole concept of like, did you actually hire the like high-paid enterprise salespeople and like they didn't hit the, the, the first round of those, didn't really work out? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a, yeah. And look, that's that's as much a, it's a timing thing more than it probably is like a yeah. you know real product thing. But yeah, yeah. Ideally, somebody should write a book where it says don't do that. But like, I don't. I think everybody just has to experience this themselves. Uh, are you familiar yeah. with uh, with PTC? You know what that is? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, right? Polymetric technology company. Exactly. So that that was our initial crowd. Oh, funny. That your first salespeople from there. Yeah. yeah. So that was very interesting. Uh, very East yeah. Coast sort of culture. Versus us being, you know, much more of a sort of West Coast culture, and you know, uh, was very, was uh, very, very interesting. You know, I like these guys, you know, but they had a they had a very different attitude to things, and yeah. Um, so, so we had some we had some really interesting kind of discussions. Uh, I got to know I got to know a lot of them, you know, on their home turf as well, and you know, sales guys and SEs and so forth. And you know, there's still a bunch, you know, that. Uh, that are here, right? But like, sort of the first wave was definitely not easy, right? Because it was just not yet at all clear how to sell this and how to deal with these sort of obvious, you know, objections around where the data lives and all that stuff. Yeah, but like, we certainly went through a bunch of iterations on that. So, you know, which approach did you end up taking? Like the approach of okay, well, let's collect, like, you know, maybe only the metadata and process that, or and you know, try to reduce the amount of sensitive data that you were using, or did you take the approach of let's go after like every major certification and get the pen test through FedRAMP? Like, which which angle did you go, or some combination of both? The latter. You know, we the, this type of product you can't get away with just doing the metadata, right? You really have to have it all. Got it. And uh, so that was really the only way to do it. We started with SOC 2, then we ended up, you know, building around that. You know, if you haven't done anything like that before, even something like SOC 2 is actually pretty hard because, you know, there's certain things that you need to do, but then you also have to sort of get into the groove of how to sort of work with the auditors and like how to have those conversations, right? And and all of that. And and then we got that certification and HIPAA followed. And then um, we ended up doing PCI. I think we're like at the current level 3.2 DSS. So basically service provider level one certified, just like a bank, right? And uh, then ISO, and we are listed as FedRAMP ready at this point, it's public information. So we're going, you know, the FedRAMP thing is something we're doing, right? And it sort of these, these certifications get harder and harder. And by the time, I mean, even PCI is already, you know, pretty tight. By the time you get to FedRAMP, it's like a whole different game. 
and you just like this this summer was when you hit the FedRAMP side. So like it's sort of this is something that you've been building up over the course of of nine years, right? Absolutely. It's almost like an arms race, right? Like every like enterprises want more and more certifications, and like you kind of have to keep escalating and escalating like the level of data security that you that you have and that you can demonstrate. Yes, but I absolutely. Um, but at the same time, I think it's part of the course, right? And I think philosophically. You know, you gotta have a way to convince yourself that you are not just like leaking your customers' data left and right, just from a moral sure. perspective, right? In my mind, and and so so how do you do that, right? And you know, you can like no, we're not doing formal verification, right? This is like you know, as we know, even flight computers don't do that anymore these days, apparently, right? It's basically a very very hard problem, and. And so the next best thing is like, hey, we have smart engineers, right, who have security background and uh, they're going to design a secure system. It's like, hmm, sure, they should try, right? right? But like, no, but I mean, I'm not going to buy that if you tell me that, right? Because, you know, we all know how hard, how easy, like software has bugs, right? And et cetera, et cetera. So, so perfectly secure system is just a really hard problem, right? And, and, and so you try your best and then you're, you're being open about what it is that you're doing. You think through yeah, where, where encryption is happening, where you need to encrypt, how do you do key management, et cetera, et cetera, right? And you try to put that into a, the best architecture that you can come up with. And we did that early on. And obviously it's been evolving since, right? But like our first cut already was like, you know, like very, very strict tenant separation in different keys for every tenant and blah, 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 and so forth, right? So so that put us basically, you know, on a, on a good talk track. Um, then we got it certified. And, you know, you can, again, you can be very cynical about this whole certification thing because in the end, you know, depends a little bit on some level also how you present it. And, you know, there's, there's no perfect way for an auditor to sort of really, really, really test that like every single word that you say is definitely implemented that way without bugs, right? So there's a little bit of sort of softness in that. But still, you know, by the time you're done with an audit, you know, these guys are no joke, right? Even for SOC 2, you know, you are starting to sort of update your processes. You maybe have a couple of fixes in the way that you manage data, you know, encryption, et cetera, et cetera. And you keep doing that. And it's expensive, both in terms of actual money, but also in terms of time spent and, you know, maybe opportunity cost, if you want to say that, because there's some real engineering that's going on. Uh, I, I actually don't think it's opportunity cost, but, you know, you could argue that you could build a feature instead, right? But in the end, I think the certifications and that whole process helps you to to have more and maybe the best confidence that you could possibly have, that your system is as tight as you can possibly make it to the best of your sort of abilities right and i think that's the bar that you need to set for yourself you know apart from the fact that you know if if we lose somebody's data the company is going to be in a, in a in a really bad place it's also just for me personally you know i don't want to be that guy that loses your data i don't that's just not okay so that's why we go through all of these things yeah and i mean and it's interesting because you know it's kind of similar to just even like testing your code we were like nah like why would i need to test it like i wrote it and it works like you know, I, I couldn't have screwed it up, and then, and then you realize like there was a bug, and like that bug is the thing that led to it. So, so doing these sort of security audits and all of the different angles and, and threat modeling and, and vectors yep. gives you sort of a context and ability to to find different angles and areas that like you didn't really think through, or there might be a bug, and to, and to sort of add you know security in depth, and you know in order to prevent as many of these issues as possible, right? Like obviously. You know, it's it's hard to have perfect security, right? That's fairly impossible, but yep. but you can get pretty close by really being focused. So 
So it starts from you know being essentially a business imperative because you have to be able to handle the objections, right? And it's a moral imperative on some level if you want. At least it was for us, and then there's a huge investment. But this is pretty differentiated for us today, right? It's part of a value prop that you know we actually have all of these checks and balances in place. You know, in our world, like you know, among our competitive set, we are far ahead of anybody else there, if I might say so. And so, like, if we dive into any of those security features specifically. So you mentioned like key management. Did you end up doing like enterprise key management, like EKM, where the customer controls the key and then you sort of take it for and cash it for ten minutes? Is that a thing you do or not? Um, so when we started, um, that was not possible. So we ended up with something like again, this is like ten years back, right? I mean, Amazon has like AWS has services for for everything. Probably including podcast reporting at recording at this point. I don't know. We just have have two Alexas talk to each other. But the, you know they didn't really have HSMs available like these hardware security modules at the time when we started. So we have a, a we have a slightly different scheme there. The uh, you know integration with the uh, HSMs is something that you know we are going to very likely have to do in a fairly short order. Yeah, I mean it's still it doesn't you know. Cover everything, right? There's still like you still have a key, and you're still processing unencrypted data, so there's bugs can still happen. Oh yeah, it's a trust thing, right? And and so you know what happened with you know us being able to sort of I guess fairly intelligently talk customers when they came over, you know through what we're doing, and then have the certifications to basically lend it additional sort of oomph. You know we had like <laughs> we. <laughs> Like early on already, right? We had like guys come in. You know, when you're a startup and you know you're funded by, you know, like in our case, we have a we have like name brand VCs, right? Then, you know, all kinds of interesting people will show up uh, and you know try to take a look at your company. You know, including delegations from, you know, European, you know, uh, <laughs> telcos, right? And, and and you know, of course, then you're gonna have the meeting and you have a bunch of like. In walk these like eight Swiss guys, you know, very stern with their kind of, you know, you know, blue suits, right? And then we're sitting there with, you know, anime shirts, t-shirts, and long hair, <laughs> so, and they're just looking at us through their, you know, Porsche design, you know, eye glasses, and and they're yeah. like, what is this? And then, of course, the first thing is because they're a big service provider, right? Telco, what have you? Of course, they try to completely nail you on this um, data management thing. And then we talked them through it. And like, you know, I could see one guy basically just kind of go and, you know, poke the other guy with the elbow. And, you know, they look at each other and they whisper, like, man, these guys are doing more than we do. Yeah. Right. So uh, it was some it was really interesting kind of observations along those lines. Yeah. A lot of people actually have this question, but they, they do a lot less, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's a really, you know, interesting, you know, piece. And, and it's just so critical, right? And so it, it, do you feel like, in the last few years, the sort of expectations for customers around your data security and like data privacy, even with GDPR stuff, do you feel like that's just continued to escalate? Yeah. 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 And for good reason, right? Um, yeah. You're even often listed on your customers' like, you know, GDPR subprocessor list, right? Because the, you know, I'm guessing that the, the data that you're, that you're ingesting from, you know, some of your biggest customers ends up having consumer data in it as well, right? Inevitably, uh, we can't categorically exclude it, right? So there's a chance, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes it's explicit because, you know, they want the data to be there. And then sometimes it's just, you know, it could happen because, 
you know, collection and, you know, sifting through the data before, you know, it goes into the next system. Frankly, whether that's on-prem or, or in AWS or, or SaaS, it's very hard, right? Uh, classification of all this stuff. I'm guessing your customers asked a lot of questions around that and when that was a really hot topic and now there's CCPA and other pieces too. Is this a thing that you kind of continuously feel pressure from your customers around having answers to? Yeah, and rightfully so, right? There's got to be some way of giving consumers some peace of mind, right? That, you know, not every single gesture they have do every day and every single thought that they think on a daily basis is getting exploited for commercial reasons. You know, data leaks and, you know, this whole election thing and, you know, the Cambridge Analytica thing and the Facebook thing and all of these things, whether these were the right things to bring these topics in the forefront of the discussion or not, we can argue, but like the fact is that there's some pretty systematic surveillance, right? <laughs> that is basically the, the price that you pay for interacting with things on the internet. And, and there's got to be some amount of governance for this, right? To sort of basically align, you know, align what companies do, you know, morally also, I think, where people sort of sit from a values perspective, you know, depending on which society they're coming from. Pretty abstract thing there, but like... No, no, I, I love it because I think it's... Like, I, I've been sort of thinking about this more and realized that one of the things that's happened with this, like the zeitgeist changing about how people think about data and, and their data, I think that companies have started to realize that every piece of data that they process, they don't necessarily own, right? Just because like I, as a consumer, give you data about me and you can process it and use it some you know, something that you're going to do for me doesn't mean you own that data. Instead, you're really like a custodian or a steward of that data. And so it changes the relationship that the primary like receiver company like of that data gets with that data, where now they think about like, okay, well, who should I be sharing this with other than, you know, without your permission? And so there's all these sort of, you know, down the line implications that I think are really, really important and really interesting and we're just starting to see the the effects of it, right? Yep. And then on the on the flip side is that the way that regulators might think about this, right? Um, you know, right to be forgotten, data deletion, that kind of stuff. You know, once you flip that back into the sort of technical realm, it becomes, you know, it can quickly become an intractable problem, right? And I think that's where, on the flip side, then you know, feedback from technical folks has to also be heard. It says, hey, you know, you know. Being able to sort of, you know, delete individual bytes basically out of very large databases or, you know, aggregations of data is fundamentally, technically, probably almost impossible, you know, without having blast radius, without like deleting other things along with it, et cetera. So I think it's more kind of a moral code than anything else, right? And then, yeah, obviously there has some technical implementation behind it and there has to be, you know, checks and balances in place. What I hope is that regulators are not going to sort of defy you know, basic principles of computer science and, you know, end up asking us stuff that we can almost basically not do. And that becomes then an exponential cost and so forth and distraction. So I, I think there's a middle ground for that. But but fundamentally, you know, I do think this discussion has to happen. Yeah, because you mentioned append-only earlier in reference to, to ArcSight. Is Sumo also kind of append-only oriented? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, yes, when you create the data, we will, like, Obviously, it's kind of record-based, but like the records all come off loud of large blobs, right? We don't have record addressability in our backend, right? It's not like every log message becomes a row, right? Every every log message is part of a much larger batch of other messages, right? And and so the batches are addressable. 
Uh, so that's where it starts with. And, and oftentimes for security, you need that log of history and you need the immutability of this, right? Exactly. I was going to go exactly to that one next, right? And to some degree, the fact that, you know, what we do, uh, the way that we store the data is in fact in blocks in S3 in an immutable fashion is very much a feature of the system that, you know, some regulations actually require, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you run into these interesting competition between regulations where, you know, one regulation says, you know, I should be able to delete that record, but it's in direct violation <laughs> of the other regulation right. that says you cannot, abs- absolutely cannot delete records. <laughs> so. Right. It's like know your customer versus like GDPR, right? Like, you know, uh, like, hey, I did all these financial transactions like on your system, but like now I'll go delete all my information, right? Like what? That doesn't seem like a thing that should be able to happen. So and is that kind of what you're talking about? That's exactly what we're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Do you know, like, is there any precedent in that, like, in terms of how that should be handled or what the sort of legislation, because this is the interesting part to your point, like, the legislators don't really understand the technology, you know, or the implications or necessarily even what else has been regulated. So, you know, is there any kind of precedent around how that's supposed to be handled today? I'm not sure whether there's kind of a, a national or sort of, you know, global, you know, precedent. Like, our stance on that is that um, we will mask data, right? Mm-hmm. You know, on demand, if this GDPR thing comes up, but like in customers that have, let's say, governed by PCI as well, which is a lot of them, you know, we're not going to delete it or mask it. So you're basically saying you can go in there and do some type of encryption, or what are you, what are you doing to mask? What does that mean, like redaction? Or yeah, we basically redact it on the read path. Okay, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right, so that you know, for all intents and purposes, people can't see it. Interesting. Yeah, but the encrypted bytes are still on disk somewhere, right? Unless. Unless the customer, you know, allows us to basically, you know, delete entire time ranges, then we'll blow those away, right? But and you know, along with the three messages that you want to delete, you're going to delete lots of other messages as well, right? And that we can do, and we do do that also. Oh, and do you have like a like a I don't know some kind of Merkle tree or something in the background that's like taking a a hash of the data every like few minutes in order to prove immutability? So no, actually, uh, we are not at the level where we need to prove. Immutability, okay. um, but you know, if you had to, yes, you would do sort of these hash chains or what have you, blockchains, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, maybe we should have become a blockchain startup. I don't know, but um, well, no, no, it doesn't yeah, necessarily yeah. have to be. We don't, we don't need to publish it to the internet. Right? You, just, you do use it yourself, right? It's a, it's still a primitive. You know, I don't, I don't want to be accused of trying to say you should blockchain this. No, no, I'm, I was just, I was just, I guess I was a bit snarky <laughs> here, know, but know. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> it's really about um, sort of. The granularity of addressability of data, and so you know, individual records are basically you know, basic because of the way that the system is constructed. You know, individual records can be masked, but not on their own deleted. Be deleted. Instead, we can kind of delete blocks of data, right? So, and in many cases, that's all that's needed, right? It's just that you know, you don't get just the three messages. You might blow away a bunch of other stuff as well, which and in 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 many cases, that's an easy trade-off. So it really depends on the customer. Very cool. It's super. It's interesting. So it's a problem that I've thought about, and it really exists no matter where the data lives, right? If even if you delivered your software to the customer for them to run it privately, they still need to figure out a way to to handle these kind of requests themselves. So exactly right. And and I think what we have there is is really us, you know, you know, trying to do the best we possibly can, and like you know, with the right mindset, I think goes much much further. Then you know what a lot of companies you know if they are trying to do their own backup management and what have you, 
will be able to do themselves. Yeah. Right. I mean, by the time the tapes are, you know, in the Iron Mountain truck, you know, somebody comes in and says you need to delete something. There's, you cannot tell me that people go and you know bring back all the tapes, That's right? So true. And delete individual, delete individual records from those, and they're gonna pretty much, you know, if at all, burn the tapes. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, talk about that for blast radius, right? So, anyways, there's some really interesting implementation, you know, issues. Um, generally, we try to face them head on and be just clear, right? Here's what we can do. And here's the trade-offs, right? And then, you know, we engage with customers and we have good relationships with those customers. Uh, we have, you know, pretty good team that, you know, is both technical as well as knows how to sort of, you know, deal with these types of emergencies where, you know, often the customer is also fairly stressed, as you can imagine, right? And I think we've developed some good procedures on how to deal with that. And um, we're just, with our customers, we're just open about it. And, and the, you know, the other sort of high-level point is that like platform shifts like the like like the cloud and in sort of you know infrastructure as a service, it creates opportunity, right? So these changes, if you and your business can adapt to them and you can create solutions, it creates, you know, a new a new way for you to bring additional value to your customers. So that's how I always perceive these things. Yep. I still think fundamentally what we can kind of add back to their sort of operational Maturity and you know today sort of you know if they if they also use us for sort of security analytics, you know for their security posture, you know far outweighs in my mind what they can possibly do on their own or even with sort of legacy products. So so it becomes a trade-off, right? Mm -hmm. And the customers, you know from day one, you know customers you know that 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 came over to Sumo and you know uses are using our product and you know still today they understand that trade-off. It's just not it's not absolute, right? Right. I mean the you know. Nothing is really black and white. Everything is shades of gray, and that's the I think that's the important yeah. lesson that we always take to things. Yeah, and you know, coming coming from a technical background, of course, you know, we're sort of almost pre-programmed to think that it's either true or false, right? And you know, right. If anything, you know, even more so than you know, architecture or whatever. You, um, the one thing that I've learned is that the world is very gray. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and, and so, kind of similarly, like right in in a. In a you know, less about regulation. Maybe we go there, but um, you know, you have some sort of interesting perspectives on on the social implications of AI. Is that something you sort of want to talk about? Yeah, I had a I did a couple of talks on that topic. Right, it just kind of goes a little bit along with, I guess, what you called zeitgeist earlier. You know, over the last you know couple of years, and so obviously, you know, I've been doing data now for a very long time. Right, I mean, my career basically is about building systems that. Sounds almost trivial because I guess it's a, I'm just defining computer science, but uh, the basically data management, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so data and you know making you know getting data in, in into into one place and then you're making you know analytics possible and you know drive decisions based off data is is something that I've always done, right? And that's kind of very much at the core of my career. And uh, you know this is something that is becoming it, it's become a topic, right? You know for business, you know, like, you know, digital transformation, everything becomes, you know, ultimately measurable. If you think about how modern business works, it's very much based on the, you know, IT systems that, um, you know, they process the data for the business, right? And um, I think that's all well and fair. You know, along the lines, you know, we've also sort of seen this re-emergence of, you know, I guess, machine learning, and then people like very quickly jump to AI. And uh, that, like, it's obviously been a topic, you know, before and you know large expectations then ended up you know not playing out in the 80s and all of this type of stuff so these things are also cyclical right but i think we're still like we are in a new hype cycle around 
generally sort of the expectation of what smart algorithms can do with data in order to make better decisions, right? And I think there's nothing wrong with that as long as you are, you know, in many ways, that's, you know, what we're selling at Sumo as well, right? And it's just a fundamental functionality that you need to have in order to run your business better, to have better analytics, you know, better decision support, whether it's about the functioning of your IT systems or your security or the business itself that's driven by those systems, right? But at the same time, like with everything that's, you know, being hyped, people sort of start developing, you know, blind trust in something, right? And 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 it's it's clear that the advances in ML, you know, in the last, you know, by now almost 10 years, right? Deep learning and and so forth, you know, are, are amazing. And, you know, if you if you can compare before and after when it comes to sort of, say, image recognition, right? It's uh, it's just completely, it's a total step function. But I think what it's also been leading to is sort of this idea that machines can somehow, or algorithms can somehow make better decisions than humans, right? Uh, and I think in the broadest sense, that's not actually true. I don't actually think that as much as I'm, you know, uh, a fan of, you know, making data-driven decisions, I don't think data alone makes decisions, right? I think it's still there in support for humans to sort of add, you know, their own special sauce. Whether you have bias or not, you know, just admit it, you will have bias, right? But your intuition still matters, you know, when it comes to decisions that you make about, you know, how to conduct yourself or how to conduct your business and so forth. You know, something that kind of was sort of interesting to me was there's a, a you know, in, in light of all of this hype is, you know, what happens if this blind faith in data leads to people making decisions about other people, right? And then so that's kind of a slightly different sort of sphere where where you have all kinds of potentially unintended consequences and side effects on a sort of more on a level of society, right? And so something that kind of opened my eyes to that quite a bit is this book called uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. Um, it's a nice pun in there by, by Kathy O'Neill. I think that was probably the first thing that came out that was basically trying to take a look at sort of the social implications of, of blind faith in algorithmic decision making. And here we're not talking about, you know, trying to show somebody better ads. Here we're trying to talk about trying to figure out whether they will commit crimes again and whether or not to let them out of prison or, you know, whether they are good teachers or, uh, you know, whether they're worthy of, um, you know, social services, uh, keeping their, their children and so forth. Right. And there's a sort of a, there's a couple of sort of literature that came out in the last couple of years looking at sort of the societal effects of this sort of, you know, basically blind face in algorithms making better decisions than humans. And like, I kind of sort of, Wrap my, try to wrap my head around that a little bit, right? And but like I came to the conclusion that data fundamentally is human, right? It's you know generated by humans. It's ultimately consumed and analyzed by humans. And machines can help, but machines alone, I don't think you know can be trusted in all cases to make the right decisions. Machines making, I guess, decisions about other machines <laughs> is one thing, but machines making decisions about humans, I think there's there's a lot of potential issues there. Interesting. And so categorically, you'd be pretty much okay with machines making decisions about machines? So I guess, you know, that was me trying to kind of on the fly abstract things like, you know, ad placement and so forth, right? Sort of, you know, machines making decisions about machines, making decisions about people, you know, <laughs> that could become sort of a, a fallacy, right? Um, sure, because it's like bits meet atoms everywhere. But I, I guess, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, as we talk about optimizing, 
you know, performance of a database, like some type of machine learning to determine that, like feels there's not a lot of uh, blast radius for that, right? I totally agree, right? But you know, I think it's it, so. The reality is that I think when when things happen that like you know have effect on you know people making decisions about people, or, or basically people outsourcing decisions about people, you know, to algorithms, is that you know the stuff is not usually even that that sophisticated. It's uh, it's usually a bunch of models, right? And sometimes it's just a bunch of questionnaires, right? But the idea is that it creates some sort of score, right? And if the score is below the threshold, then you know you're not a good teacher and all of that, right? So, or, or you know, you are not going to get released from prison because, uh, you know, the chances are that you are going to, you know, commit crimes again. And then you look at the questionnaire and it's like, you know, it asks all these questions about which neighborhood do you live in and what's your race, right? And the idea then becomes that, you know, these instruments are trying, you know, people are building these instruments, algorithms and so forth because they are weary of this sort of messy you know, part of human decision-making and it potentially being biased and not fair and all of that, right? So they say, hey, if I can abstract that out into an algorithm, then, you know, clearly algorithm doesn't have bias. Algorithms, you know, make fair decisions, data in, data out, you know, but based on everything that I've seen and, you know, it's it's in, in many different examples laid out and, you know, book that I mentioned and there's a, there's a couple of other books that came out since then. You know, the reality becomes, you know, that the problem that people find themselves then if there's like, you know, or think about credit scoring, you know, it's an even simpler example, right? The idea is that you have an algorithm basically make decisions because it is supposed to not be biased because you are weary of humans, you know, like, you know, making biased decisions. But, you know, what happens is that, you know, if you look at the way that like instruments and algorithms are designed, you know, what people find is that it's not actually that easy to, or it seems almost impossible to design an algorithm or an instrument that doesn't actually perpetuate the bias of the designers, right? So, you know, in the end, what comes out is anyways biased. But now, you know, how do you appeal that? How do you appeal to a machine? The end result is actually, it's not wor- it's actually worse than before, right? So that's kind of the line of thinking that, that kind of got stuck in my head. And I thought it was actually pretty interesting. Yeah, no, it, it is. Though, I think it's, it actually incriminates something else. And this will be because I'm like part. This is I'll, I'll inform the the audience. This is this is definitely because I'm like a fairly crazy like free markets anarchist, right? And so generally, my my thought there is like it actually is more incriminating of the centralization of decision making than it is incriminating of the AI. And so, like I think the challenge that we're facing there is we have a centralization of like. Like who's in prison? Who's you know like the child services? All these other things in terms of like that's we're we're outsourcing that to a like an, an intelligence that we call you know some centralized government. And in my opinion, we should be decentralizing as much of that as we can in a way to remove sort of how those decisions get made, and you know and using AI to make those decisions in an even more centralized fashion. I would agree is a challenge, but probably from a different perspective. Then you would arrive there. Oh, we arrive at the same conclusion. Oh, interesting. Um, on Great. some level, right? Which that's that's good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it's very interesting, right? Because there's progress to be made, right? And I think we just also have to continue to sort of negotiate, you know, whether what the right sort of application is of these types of tools, right? And we talked about this earlier. The world is really gray, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually a perfect sort of lead into this discussion, you know. People, however, desire it not to be gray, right? They desire it to be black and white. And if there's like tools available that like promise, you know, to turn the gray into black and white, I think any which way you get there, it's both extremely appealing to people, but also extremely dangerous. 
Yeah. Right. And, you know, centralization is one thing. Blind faith in, in algorithmic decision making is another thing where, you know, people fall into the trap of thinking that there's some sort of, you know, magical device that can turn the messiness of the real world uh, into a sort of a simple black and white thing. But the reality is, you know, if you are in a position where you need to make decisions about other people, you know, you just can't outsource that into a black and white kind of, you know, one bit output system, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I mean, I, that's what I think, right? I, I, I do think that, you know, intuition matters. And I don't think that there's a magical device to remove bias. <laughs> you know, people are inherently biased. There's, there's, there's nothing you can do about that, right? Certainly algorithms are not necessarily the solution, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing that I've, I tend to, to believe is that leveraging data to help inform decision making, but maybe, you know, keeping a human in the loop is a really interesting like perspective where like we, we should be informed of our biases. We should be informed of all the things that we might be taking in, in sort of hopefully systems and computers can help us make better decisions. But ultimately I I, I do believe like a human in the loop is is important. So there's this thing that people like, you know throw at me all the time, you know, which is this like, you know, you probably have the visual, right? In God we trust, all others must bring data. Right. And and so there's like basically, you know, two of my least favorite statements in <laughs> you know, together. I do actually believe that data is important, but I'm 100% with you. I think, you know, it's still the human that makes the decision, right? And of course you need to look at data, right? But you also need to understand if I have somebody who tells me that they are making decisions based on data, okay, that's not a bad starting point, right? But then I also need to understand what's your intuition, what's your experience, you know, what's what's your context? Because the data alone doesn't necessarily help me there, right? Yeah, I mean, realistically, it's like, and we're, so many people are so bad at statistics, and you can look for whatever truth and data oh, that you might want yeah. to. And so it's like, yeah. great, like, okay, <laughs> including including probably, myself. <laughs> yeah, of course, we all can. Yeah, you know. So one other, just like kind of back to to Sumo for a bit. You know, when you think about like you know where Sumo is in terms of you know emerging technologies, and if it's ML or if it's you know, I, I noticed that you have a pretty big uh, call to action around Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. What are some of the these trends that you're seeing that you're that you're really that, that could be platform shifts today? Is, is Kubernetes one of those main ones? I think Kubernetes is interesting because it promises a simplification and an abstraction over these emerging deployment sort of options, right? Because suddenly, you know, just being able to deploy an AWS isn't good enough anymore. You need to be multi-cloud, right? Mm-hmm. For example, right? Or you need to be hybrid or whatever it is, right? And so. Um, now we're back to, hey, you know, your software doesn't just have to run on Windows, it also has to run on Mac, you know, or, you know, iOS is not good enough, you also need Android. It seems to me sometimes that people feel that Kubernetes is, and, and I've certainly gone down that route myself, uh, you know, so I'm not just saying other people, but like it, it occurred to me as well that Kubernetes could be an interesting layer of abstraction as a sort of portable platform as a service, right? And I think that's kind of why people have sort of picked up on it so much. Probably less so. To some degree, it feels like you know Kubernetes coming out of you know the sort of Google Borg thing. I don't think Borg was uh, the stuff that the Google guys are doing wasn't necessarily designed to support across you know deployment. I mean systems and so forth, right? They have one, and it just needs to really, really, really scale there, right? And they built a lot of and they discovered a lot of stuff and you know build it into that. And you know Kubernetes is kind of the open source version of that, of course. And originally, what I thought it was a way to build like more easily build really large systems, but when I sort of which, which is, I think, what it was originally intended for. Certainly, that kind of seems seem would seem to be obvious to me, knowing from where it's coming from. But it feels like the market is picking it up as a as a way of actually maybe not even build the ultimate like you know hyperscale system, but build lots of sort of you know 
reasonably scalable system in a modern paradigm with, you know, microservice orientation and so forth, and you know some amount of horizontal scalability, and use Kubernetes as a abstraction layer, so to not necessarily have to commit to any given deployment substrate. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. And of course, you know, your company kind of, obviously, I'm sort of preaching to the choir, I guess, right? Because that's kind of my understanding of what what Replicated is is really leveraging as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's enabling Kubernetes. Like our whole thesis is that one, we do kind of believe that Kubernetes is is sort of this like patterns and primitives of building reliable software. Yep. And so, you know, we'll often talk about like how, if you remember, like. If you use containers or any of the like Linux C groups before, like everybody kind of wrote their own like way to manage that, right? Yep. yep and yep. it was like there was Mesos and there was, you know, Uber had something called Peloton and yep. Facebook had Tupperware and everybody had these like things that were basically all inspired by Borg. And now we sort of see the community moving to this like canonical implementation and it's providing some of these patterns and primitives of, of like how do you actually build out something in a, in a reliable, scalable fashion. And you know, I would say just like there's primitives for security for encryption, and it would be insane to write your own encryption algorithm today. We think that the same thing is happening for reliability, and there's now these reliability primitives, and it would be sort of insane to write your own orchestration and scheduling tools today. Yeah. Caveat: Replicated did write our own orchestration five years ago, so like part of that is is from from firsthand experience. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but but yeah, as we all make those mistakes, we generally believe. That there is this interesting platform shift, right? And that is, if everything moves to Kubernetes, and instead of that old world of racking and stacking servers, you can start to, you know, deliver like you can bake a lot of that operational knowledge that all of those old customers at ArcLight had to like figure out for themselves. You can bake that into a single manifest and deliver the images to a customer, and they can run it in their own Kubernetes cluster. Like it starts to to really solve some of those operational overhead problems of the old world, and then in this new sort of World of data privacy and security requirements. It allows a, a vendor to solve some of those problems without having to process the data because they can just deliver the app to where the data resides. Yep. But you know, I'm guessing your team is using it more of like you're seeing more Kubernetes environments that customers have, and so you're trying to help people take control of what's going on in their own Kubernetes cluster and use that as a source for events and things. Is that right? Yeah, of course. Um, so fundamentally, we are sort of a log analytics and monitoring or observability platform if you want. But like, you know, that's what we do. Basically, uh, in short, we help people, you know, run their systems in a reliable fashion, right? So that's one aspect of that we of what we do. And uh, the other aspect is make them run in a secure fashion, right? So, and so clearly we have seen, you know, Kubernetes to become a thing that we now also need to be able to monitor because people are using it, right? And then, you know, they need to keep that reliable and, you know, here we are. So uh, we built a bunch of, you know, because, you know, Kubernetes introduces a couple of new concepts and so forth, so then you want to evolve your product as well to kind of present those mental models, you know, that go into, you know, into sort of the design of you know, Kubernetes per se, but then also sort of the way that this plays out into your own applications, topology-wise and so forth, you know, present some of those mental models back to a user to make it easier for them to manage their reliability. So that's kind of the sort of product aspect as far as Kubernetes is concerned for us, right? And, you know, then, of course, there's lots of security aspects to that as well, you know, container images and so forth. So the divide between operational stuff and security anyways kind of goes away and in these modern environments even more so. And then the other aspect is that, you know, we are also um, you know, starting to use Kubernetes ourselves, right? Oh, cool. If we had started the company a couple of years ago, it would have probably already, you know, be Kubernetes native. 
but we started it in 2010 when none of the stuff was available. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, so we are kind of, you know, our, our core architecture is, is still very, very much focused on, you know, EC2 and lots of automation tools that we wrote ourselves. So we have a version of everything that HashiCorp eventually released. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, it's pretty interesting. Um, oh, funny. Uh, which which is uh, which was a blessing back then because we had the tooling and now it's more of a curse because it you know it's it's idiosyncratic and you know if we hire new people then you know they might they might already know Terraform right but they might not necessarily understand our own thing and then we need to teach them and so that, again you know whatever you do <laughs> you can't win <laughs> yeah but uh, hey here we are you know we're still alive and kicking so um, and I think that that you know the decision to like write a lot of our own automation tooling on top of the AWS API in 2010 is part of what got us here. So it's all good. Yep. Yep. And so the other thing that was that's kind of noteworthy for me when, when as far as Kubernetes is concerned is that, and this goes back to kind of, I guess, sort of just maybe sentiment that I expressed earlier, which is, you know, Kubernetes is something that came out of one of the largest hyperscale companies ever, right? Uh, and then, you know, the competing sort of systems, internal systems that you referred to, you know, Facebook, et cetera, those are also, these guys run at scales and most of us, you know, including Sumo, right? And then we run at pretty large scale, but nothing compared to Google, obviously, right? Uh, a lot of applications don't actually need to scale to that level, right? And it's it's quite interesting that the adoption of Kubernetes is also you know, somewhat removed from this, like you know, absolutely top five hyperscale kind of, kind of aspect of it. So, so it seems to scale down pretty well as well. It's it's, it's quite it's quite cool. And then the other sort of thing that I, you know, in light of all of that that I noticed is that um, actually Kubernetes ended up being a topic with a lot of our enterprise customers, customers that are still running a lot of stuff on prem, right? Because you know, Sumo itself is a service, but you know, we get a lot of data from from on prem, right? I mean, hybrid environment is a reality, right? Mm. Like Silicon Valley, we have a bunch of startups and all that. Of course, they don't have sure. on prem, but you know, enterprise customers and even mid market customers, depending on who they are and where they are. And you know where they are in, in, in their own you know maturity history. Of course, we get lots of cloud workloads, but a lot of the workloads are on-prem. And so the enterprise customers really have um, you know picked up on Kubernetes, you know, big time. You know, sometimes I feel like even more so than than some of the sort of more modern guys, because the sort of more modern people then they go and like not necessarily we see Kubernetes there obviously as well, but like we then also see things like serverless and just straight up AWS, ECS, etc. So. The part that was interesting is, you know, how much the enterprise IT has, in my observation, jumped onto sort of Kubernetes. Because I think, I don't know what what your take is on there, but um, on that, but it feels like it gives them a little bit of sort of, you know, warm and fuzzies that there's still something that sort of requires operational management, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, versus this sort of utopia that uh you know everything's serverless and and you just write a bunch of functions and and some sort of background you know system <laughs> that you can't even see or manage or or have any sort of you know physical approximation to you know it's just magically running your software so i don't know how you feel about that but i thought it was quite interesting yeah i mean we see it adopted and you know and it and it, I, I definitely think there's some aspect of control to your point right like they want like there's some Control that that folks want, but I think there's also a, a, just an area of like to the shades of gray thing, right? I think that's a, a common theme. It's just like they they're they're going to have systems that are in data centers or in multiple different places, and having a platform that they can move to that's going to be portable and is going to be like it it helps them kind of prepare for the future, right? And then 
additionally, just like if you're trying to build new software, I mean, we think you know, to digital transformation world, like everything, everyone has to become somewhat software native. Yep. And if they're going to do that, like you have to build software with like a great SDLC and a great like you know environment and and using the sort of you know tools that. Uh, that grew up inside of Google and, and were competing with a lot of different technologies and sort of emerged as the, the best in class solution for this, I think is is the right way to do it. Because to your point, like you could you could write, you know, all of your own versions of these things, but then it's just challenging to onboard new engineers and to, you know, uh, to fix it when it goes down and like and then you just become it becomes less relevant over time. So you know we, we just love the idea that like the ecosystem together has has really come together. To create such a, a robust solution for for this, yeah, it's pretty crazy if you think what's possible in open source today, right? I mean, it goes from a couple tools and that goes to an operating system, and now it goes to a data center operating system, and it's all in open source. It's it's, it's pretty amazing, actually, <laughs> right? And then on the flip side, you have you have these sort of hyperscale clouds who, who where there's a lot of proprietary stuff going on. So it's it's pretty interesting right now. Yeah, I think it'll be a. Battle that continues around, you know, customers wanting open source and companies that are that want to meet that challenge, delivering it, you know, and and we've evolved to do more open source. I'm sure you'll, you know, you're doing more and more open source. Sounds like you're working with Falco and some of these other tools, and yep, yep, and just the advantages that we can get by working together. And, and part of it's just recognizing that like the market is growing so much that you don't have to worry that much about boxing out competitors, but rather like, hey, if we just all Try to build really great systems, and we do it somewhat in the open. Even if we collaborate with folks that are somewhat competitive, like if we grow the market enough, like everybody wins. Absolutely right, and and this is one of those. This is one of the other things that we ended up, you know, to some degree, lucking into. I think at Sumo, you know, look, the the initial thesis was, you know, let's basically take this sort of security management and maybe a little bit of sort of you know application management based on logs. You know, turn that from our experience, turn it into SaaS, right? But in in like what has happened in the last ten years is that it's just becoming about data, big data. You know, not necessarily structured data. It goes very far in some of our customers' use cases away from you know using these tools to keep the systems you know reliable and secure, and it goes into understanding the business itself, right? Using these kind of like flexible agile analytics tools that that we have in a system like Sumo. And and so now we are out there in a market that uh, is, you know, depending on who you ask, anywhere between forty and seventy billion dollars a year, right? That's absurdly large. <laughs> to your point about, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. So that I, you know, in 20, 2009, 2010, I could not have even predicted that. Um, but uh, you know, this, you know, everything that has to sort of do with, you know, making data you know, available to people to make decisions. Hopefully they are not taking the data blindly and all of that, as we just said earlier. Um, but it's becoming such an, such an incredible market that, uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot of different companies that can, you know, that can create both good outcomes for customers as well as for themselves and their employees. So, Yeah, does, does that kind of play into the kind of topic you guys refer to as a continuous intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of our sort of absolutely highest level sort of, you know, aggregation of of what we think, you know, is is sort of going on in the in really sort of in the business world, right? Where it's it's basically this idea that in order to stay competitive, you just have to be able to continuously, you know, have data available to make decisions. Because it's really a rat race, right? And if the other guy can beat you to that, 
then you know they're going to get all the money and you will get none. <laughs> so to make it a little, maybe oversimplify it a little bit, right? But but yeah, uh, and I think the continuous intelligence thing, you know, what it has to do with is, you know, is like agile analytics, you know, no, you know, worshiping at the altar of the data warehouse to get a column added, like, you know, half a year later and all of that, you know, have all kinds of data, structured, semi-structured and what have you, unstructured in one system, and to basically allow access to that in a sort of democratized fashion across the entire organization, right? And of course, our our, our, our strong point is around, you know, keeping systems reliable and secure, right? But that... You know, that's that's a huge thing. And, you know, these teams, you know, between developers and DevOps and ops and, you know, depending on and security, obviously, in whatever, you know, form they are sort of sliced up in whatever, you know, corporation you're in, organization you're in, these teams keep growing, you know, because the sort of IT drives more and more of the business, right? And so once it's all IT driving the business, once it's all computers driving the business, everything happens at line speed, right? And the people who can actually make decisions at line speed, either automate it, and then we go back to sort of this classic optimization problem, you know, what to show on the page in order to get the click or or just like a little bit more abstracted, you know, strategic decisions or tactical strategic decisions, you know, sort of on a weekly basis, what, what should we focus on? What should we feature on or on our e-commerce side, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's where the real competition is. And with digital transformation, you know, everything, you know, every product, like the sort of idea there being that like products more and more turn into digital products, right? And for us, I have been using, you know, you've been using computers all your life. I have, right, on some level. This is all like, come on, you know, what's new here? But the reality is that the you know, barely half of that market is even tapped into, right? And and so that's kind of where a lot of the kind of opportunity comes from and so our term for that is uh, you know continuous intelligence right and we see ourselves as a provider of continuous intelligence for our customers you know for reliability for security and uh, more and more so for our business insight mm, interesting so so if we think about the arc of of sumo logic maybe uh, it started off sort of more like Reliability and looking at logs and looking at and collecting all these pieces, and then kind of continue to move into security. And then now you're saying like, hey, we, like it's not just those two areas, but let's help the business make better decisions about like what direction to go or things to do, and let's expose this into more sort of more organization, more organizational functions. Exactly, because you know if you think it through, once I have the logs and you know maybe additional you know time series metrics or what have you, but the logs for sure, right? Which is you know. We just really know how to do that very well. Once you have the logs, you have a lot of like diagnostic information on the systems. But you, these days, you pretty much have all the transactions in there as well, right? And and that basically that tells you what the business is doing, and then you can use that data to do better, right? And that's that's why I, I continue to be, you know, and I'm I'm sort of actually even more excited about the possibilities of what we can achieve as a company because I didn't. Yeah, I always said like ten years ago, I got laughed out of a, out of a VC meeting at some point, and saying that ultimately what we're building here is a new business intelligence, right? But uh, they were like, yeah, "No, come on, you know, go away." <laughs> but but I think it actually is playing out that way. No, it makes sense. I mean, because ultimately, like event data, you know, one of the one of the challenges with like analytics is is that you end up like sampling and doing other things and it's not always that accurate and so like if you actually are ingesting like all the actual events for security and for compliance like then the data you have is probably the most pure and then uh, being able to apply some additional like insight on top of that you know gives you like the most accurate form of the data exactly and in a system like ours right you can do that by just walking up to it and writing a query right 
you know, in the in the best case scenario, there's basically, uh, and that happens actually a lot, you don't need to do any additional prep, right? Yeah, now if you want to run that query every 15 minutes, you know, every day, then, you know, might make sense to sort of maybe do some additional prep step there. But uh, the initial answer you can get almost immediately. This is extremely powerful, right? And and we use that ourselves all, all day, right? And trying to understand how people use our product and lots of stuff there that helps us optimize the product, the the way that that we provision underneath and and all of that, you know, which helps us save costs. And, you know, that's back to being competitive. Yeah. Like, is that where you think that like the future of, of Sumo is going to be is going to be going that direction over the next like you know few years? I mean, customers are literally using us for that already, right? And you know, so from a from a startup perspective, and I still consider you know Sumo as a startup. I guess in you know, ten years is a long time, right? But you know, we are still like we're not IBM who can just like you know really nearly spin up entire new departments to go after something, right? So, so you know, we're still we're still in a situation where, and you know, frankly, that applies to every company, even IBM on some level, right? Still have to be very sort of deliberate about you know where you put the limited resources that you have. So very careful in, in in terms of layering, you know, these additional concerns, um, you know, but uh, I mean, customers are, are, are bringing us to that, right? I think, you know, we're, we're starting to sort of look at, you know, that from the sort of messaging and positioning perspective, and then you know, ultimately from the product feature perspective as well, right? Uh, it's, it's interesting because I think the market for, you know, just keeping systems reliable and secure is so large that I think we can have a very, very successful company for many decades, you know, even if we never actually do anything else but that. But the reality is, you know, just like when we started and we basically used locks only for operational analytics, customers immediately started using it for security analytics as well. Mm, and sort of, yeah. you know, almost quote unquote, crack, you know, in, in a good way, tracked us kicking and screaming back into the security realm. And sure. we were just trying to somehow keep a little bit of focus, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'm obviously very happy that we have all of these, you know, now adjacent spaces, but like we had to be very careful in when we could like invest how much in, you know, these various functionalities, right? The same is happening with these sort of more business focused use cases. And I mean, that's, you know, I'll say that is a good problem to have. <laughs> so. No, it's great. And I think you think about, you know, the company's arc, there's like act one, act two, act three, you got to keep kind of, you know, inventing yourself to, to continue to, exactly. to adjust to where the market is and to where you want to take it. So exactly. Christian, thank you so much, man. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate all your time. Likewise. It's good talking to you, sir. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.